Hello, my friends. Today, we're talking to John, CTO at Core Evitas, and we discuss lessons that are learned only from running startups, what technology might be created after the cloud, and how John's battle scars as a CTO gave him invaluable knowledge. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So tell me a little bit about you and, and how you got started. I started young. I, I kind of fell in love with computers when I was 12, 12 years old. My uncle was a mainframe programmer. And um, at some family holiday, I, I asked him what he, he did for a living. And he explained it to me and saw that I was actually really interested in what he had to say. And about a week later or so, I got, uh, he brought me some books from the old John Wiley and Son series. And one was on um, an introduction to data processing. And one was uh, about how to program in basic. And I know how odd that sounds for a 12-year-old to love these books, but I did. And uh, they sparked sort of this lifelong interest in technology. So in high school, I, I learned Fortran and Pascal, and then went on to study computer science in college. And then um, you know, after college, I started my career in financial services at places like you can appreciate this, at places like Fidelity and Putnam. And after about four or five years of uh, developing the internal software, I moved to Lotus and IBM, where I learned how to write commercial sort of enterprise scale systems. And while I was at IBM, the, the group I was working with uh, they went on to found a startup company and they recruited me to, to join them. And after working there for a couple of years, I got the bitten by the startup bug. And probably for the next 12, 15 years, I worked at a variety of startups, um, you know, in roles from senior engineer to architect and across a bunch of different industries, including um, enterprise search, e-commerce, large-scale digital map making, and location-based services uh, using mobile devices. And then about 10 years ago, I felt that I had advanced enough in my career that I had something uh, significant to offer a company and wanted to use my time and do something that was mission-driven. And this idea eventually led me to healthcare. And I'm pretty grateful for the opportunity to work in a field uh, that's dedicated to helping to improve you know, clinical outcomes and eventually improve people's lives. So it's been a, it's been a good journey. And what was it about the startup world that attracted you? It's a good question. I think it helped me realize what I was made out of, right? And in the bigger companies, there was always someone you could go to for uh, a lot of help or mentorship. And in a startup, I, in a few of them, I was the, per I was the guy, right? I had to do, figure it out. I had to make things work. I had to be resourceful. I had to kind of dig a little deeper inside to realize the value in the startup. So you're telling me if you push people, they grow, like you can put yourself <laughs> yes, in yes. discipline. If you, if you push people to grow. And more importantly, if you push yourself, That's, you yeah. grow. And you have to be willing to do that. And, you know, it, it sounds trite, but it's true. Get out of your comfort zone and push yourself and learn new things and realize that if you work at things long enough and hard enough, you will eventually get there. Yes. Exactly. You accelerated your journey by going into the startup world. Yes, I did. I learned, I learned a ton. I probably gained, you know, for every one year at the startup was almost two or three years I felt at a, at a larger company because no one handholds you at a startup. No. Sink or swim. I tell people, because we have less than 15 employees, so I, I tell people all the time, I was like, in the interview process, I set the expectation. Like, 
we don't babysit. Like you come on our team, we're all experts, we all run and you either run and you stay on the team or you don't run and you're not on the team. Right. And I think it, it, it helps you understand that you are more resourceful and grittier than you probably think you are. Yeah. And then it just helps us get to that next level. Like I had someone describe the corporate world to me as adult daycare. <laughs> I can understand that, right? It sounds insulting to some degree, but I understand it. If you, if you only, it's like if you go from school to college to, you know, basically a large cube farm where people are still telling you what to do, you never sort of break out and realize what you're capable of. Yeah. And so I would recommend that everyone do a startup or two at some point in their career. And I think it gives you um, a different perspective on work. Absolutely. And yeah, there's a huge spectrum, right? There's the people that go through that process and then they sort of mentally check out and just show up every day and they're at the lowest, often like the lowest level and they only get promoted by happenstance, right? And then you've got the people who are like trying really hard. I'd say you know, at all those enterprises, I don't want to like negate the top you know, 10% or the top 1% of people that absolutely crush it. Right. But when you have, you know, 10,000 people, your top 1% of people, that's a lot of people there, you know? That's a lot of people. Yeah. Yes, it is. All right. So you went into healthcare data, correct? Yep. What are you doing over there? Like, what problem are you solving? How are you bringing value to the marketplace? So it's helpful to understand what we do by giving you a little background on what the company does. So the name of the company is Evitas, and it's first and foremost a, a science company. So what we do is we take messy real-world data about chronic illnesses, uh, mostly in the autoimmune space, and through rigorous methods, including data management, information shaping, advanced statistics, we produce mathematically validated real-world evidence about drug efficacy and safety. So our primary customers are pharmaceutical companies and by proxy, the FDA. So we report safety issues to the FDA. And we have various business units, so the core of the disease registries, and we have other business units um, in sort of an orbit around that that contribute to uh, creating data sets. And these include uh, precision medicine. So we have the ability to collect biosamples and then do RNA and DNA sequencing on those and other sort of lab experiments on them. We have a patient experience business where we consult with CROs or contract research organizations to develop trial protocols, make them sticky. We have a patient social network called Health Unlocked, which has um, over a million and a half uh, subscribers. And it's a community of people with various, you know, sort of health conditions that communicate and provide support for one another. And then we have a small division that is a specialty EMR. So over that universe of, of data sets, we collect that, we collect that data, we do some information management, and then we derive insights from that data for efficacy and safety. So my brother and stepmom are both physicians. So I grew up around that. Yep. And we always have the conversation almost inevitably every year around Thanksgiving of when are we going to have that point where I show up at the doctor and they want my medical records and I show them my phone and I transfer, I give them access to it. And like I hold my history of medical records. I can choose who has access so that we're not doing that thing where we're faxing documents. I'm, I'm getting a life insurance policy right now the archaicness to this <laughs> life insurance application process. They like make a request, it takes 30 days, they print out papers, they mail me a physical paper because they won't accept digital signature. I sign the physical paper. Then they say it's going to be 30 days until they fax it to us. And I'm like, fax still exists? Okay. And it's just been this like huge and huge endeavor. And I want it to be really easy. When is it going to happen? I don't think in my lifetime oh. it will happen. <laughs> 
Um, I'm in my mid-50s. I honestly don't think it will happen. I mean, look at all the failed attempts right now, right? From very large, very sophisticated um, and capable companies. You have Apple, Microsoft, Amazon. All of these companies have attempted this and maybe they're too big. Maybe there's a, there's too, you know, a trust factor there. I don't, I don't know what all of the hurdles are. I mean, you have political hurdles, you have technical hurdles, you have uh, social hurdles, and it's just such a large problem. Years ago, I looked into trying to approach this problem as a startup with smart cards. Why can't you have a key, a digital key on a smart card that can unlock your records and only you would have that, right? But then you have to worry about someone stealing that key. It is a very complex set of issues and they're all interrelated. So I don't know when we'll, when we'll have that. I, I get frustrated as well. And having gone into healthcare about 10 years ago, it was almost terrifying to see all the different systems and all the different data that's, uh, that, that flows back and forth. And it, and it seems a little bit chaotic. I believe I figured out why, though. I believe that why. It's like, okay, give me an example. You call to make a doctor's appointment at my doctor, right? And there's like an incredibly long hold process. Calling is the only way to schedule. Calling is the only way to cancel. So you're going to wait on the phone for seven minutes to cancel. And then I had this epiphany while I was sitting on hold. (laughs) And I was like, they have a captive market. They have so much business. They have so much more business than they can handle. The competition is, isn't present hardly. And when there's not a financial driver to something, you, you often won't get the result, right? Like if there was financial incentive to have a like call center metrics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then instantly we would, we would have it. I say that because the technology is clearly here to have an electronic medical record that you can own and, and carry around with you, right? Right. Yeah. The storage of that is a problem, right? If like think of, uh, you know, DICOM images and, and it's very personal data. So you'd have to trust an entity to hold it, right? And even if it were encrypted, you, you would have to be the only one with the key. And then the key management becomes an issue. So there are definitely challenges, especially for mass populations. If on your free time, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, creator of the web, right? Yep. I did an interview with him a few years ago and he was telling me about like what the internet's going to be in the future and what they're working on and things like that. And these pod concepts where like the data resides with me, but I can choose to give you read and choose to give you write access and I can revoke it at any time so that you yeah. can be updating my data store. And I thought that that was actually a really unique way because right now, if you're a customer at Bank of America, the data resides over there. Right. You can see where we might apply uh, technology like blockchain to that. Yeah. Right. Where you own. So it's, it's irrevocable. I mean, you can revoke it when you need to with tokens. Uh, it's read only. You can't mess with it. So I think that could be a technology that we use to solve some of this problem. Is anyone doing that? Not that I know of. Um, the, the company I came from, HMS, which was uh, acquired actually by um, now Cotivity and Gainwell, um, we started talking about potentially using blockchain as an experiment to see what we could do with Medicaid and Medicare data. We never got that off the ground because we were acquired, but it, it was an interesting concept. So it's in the back of my mind. I want to talk a little bit about what do you and your team specifically do? We're responsible for all of the technology and platforms that enable our scientists to do their jobs, right? So data collection, data shaping, data storage, protection, privacy, and then all the, all the software processes that underlie that. 
So the SDLC, you know, software development, QA, DevOps, IT, data analytics, reporting, um, and cybersecurity is, is what my team does overall. So you're primarily like in, internally focused to build the common components. Internally and, focused, okay. right? So most of our customers for technology are internal. Okay. So those include biostatisticians, epidemiologists, pharmacovigilance folks, and, and some of those folks are actually uh, MDs as well, as doctors. What is, I've heard you say it once or twice, info shaping or data shaping, is that just like en- enrichment? Is that like a similar thing? It's enrichment, right. You, okay. you, take the raw, you take raw data and then you can either enhance it or reject it based on certain you know, filters and business rules. You might want to quarantine it. And so you want it, you want it to be slightly... You know, I think of it as, as raw and then semi-cooked and then curated or cooked. Have you come across any systems or I'm thinking that a lot of companies build on themselves, but like where you can pump in all your customer data and like get a bunch of analytics about like who your customers are and like how fast deals move and things like that? I mean, certainly platforms like Salesforce do that and, and okay. other, other sort of commercial platforms will do that on the CRM side of the world. For us, we're you know, collecting a lot of clinical data. And then we want to do bespoke analysis on that clinical data. So getting it to a place where you can do analysis is actually um, a big effort right now for us because we have lots of different disease registries. We have lots of different kinds of data. And so we have two major projects going on right now. One is the development of a data warehouse to collect the data about all the different disease registries into one place. But that's a highly curated data structure. And so the other major project is building out a data lake, right? Capturing the data in its raw form, being able to look at it in all its sort of messiness is very useful in a lot of ways, especially for pharmacovigilance. And then taking that and being and presenting it in a way that's editable and, and malleable. And then eventually that gets to a highly curated state in the data warehouse. So we're responsible for those two major projects and then all the sort of um, software development that has to go underneath that. How do you keep the focus on the outcome? So like when you go down these data projects, at least in my subjective experience, you start out with, okay, I'm just going to use a customer one because that's what's on top of my mind. Sure. Uh, okay, I want to know like which part of the market of our customers closes the fastest. You know, I want information about who closes the fastest from the deal creation date to deal close date. And you go on this journey and then you start noticing, oh, well, Look at this. I could, I could do that and I could do that and I could do that. And then you, you know, start collecting all this data and then you have to sort of stop yourself and be like, okay, hold on a second. It's overwhelming. I need to get back to like just the original hypothesis, the one thing I wanted to figure out first. How do you keep the focus on that as you have all these massive data sets? I think proselytizing <laughs> more than anything, keeping your team on on task, remind them of the goal over and over and over. And you have to be, you know, vigilant. And if you see it start going off course, you can let it go off course a little bit, right? Because maybe there'll be a great discovery or maybe a great insight. So you don't want to be too restrictive. But I think being vigilant, managing two outcomes to your point, I think is extremely important and reminding the team what the outcome is, because it's easy to get lost in the forest for the trees. And maintaining communication, I think, is probably the most important thing, both physical communication like this, getting, getting together, talking about what's going on, reminding the team where we need to, to be and the value of why we're doing it. I think emphasizing the why is extremely important because you, know, you can talk at somebody for only so long, but if you explain the why, then they develop their own energy around the outcome. 
I want to talk a little bit about clouds because it's popular buzzword in every part of the market today. But for you, like the context, like what is what is the cloud doing for you or how are you perceiving it right now in your world? It's an invaluable tool, right? Because the startup time to either test the technology or investigate a new concept is extremely easy to do and, and very low risk, right? So you have a vast array of modern scalable technologies at your fingertips. And before, before the cloud, you couldn't, you, most companies didn't have the financial wherewithal to be able to test things out and see if they worked or not. They had no ability to fail fast, really. And so you had to make significant commitments to a technology path that you didn't know for sure was going to work. So I think that's one thing the cloud, the cloud provides. And then all of these sort of operational overhead, you know, security, setting, uh, setting up equipment, um, all, all that stuff is taken care of for you. So the operational burden is removed. So you can really focus on your domain problem and you can focus on, you know, the software and you can develop the software to solve that problem and not have to worry about the low level infrastructure. I think that's really important. You don't have to make significant capital investments anymore. You have the ability to scale, you know, as long as you understand how distributed systems work. That's one thing, sort of a, a, a bit of a downside, really, but not, not quite. It's just an extra burden on the development team to really understand distributed systems because by their nature, cloud systems are distributed. But yeah, there's, uh, and, and it's very cost effective. You know, there are some hidden costs. It's, it's sometimes difficult to estimate what it will cost. Although all the rules are laid out, really relating those rules to real life is very, very difficult. Like what's a compute hour? Exactly. How would you think about a compute hour? How do you think about how much data is actually flowing? So you have to do lots of measurement to baseline your systems. And then you can start making decent estimates on cost. And are you, are you considered a cloud provider in your industry? I wouldn't say we're a cloud. No, we're not a cloud provider. We're certainly a consumer of cloud. And because we don't offer our data to our customers, so our data is highly valued. It's considered the gold standard in our industry. And so we keep all of the data private. And then what we really sell right now is the analysis. Once the data lake is finished and that we're targeted um, mid-next year, we have the option to expand our portfolio of products to offer those data sets for slicing and dicing. And so we, we may say we anonymize it, right? So we hold no PHI. So we have an anonymous data set a longitudinal data set of chronic illness. And so if we made that available, you, you can imagine pharmaceutical companies, research labs, research hospitals, all wanting that data and being able to slice and dice it as they see fit. So there is a possibility of expanding the revenue portfolio with data as a service. And then we would probably be a provider. That would be pretty cool because yeah. I've gotten to talk to some people who've done amazing things. This one guy out of, I believe is out of Australia had taken large numbers of x-rays and used it to like predict different things. It would essentially be able to diagnose more accurately than a human by looking at radiographs. That's what they're called. Yep. We do some of that now with, uh, we acquired a company called Vestrum, mm -hmm. which has imagery of the retina. So we have a lot of retinal images and there are certain diseases where you can correlate lesions and other, I'm not a doctor, so I, I'm a little out of my depth here, but <laughs> lesions on the retina with the progression of certain diseases. And so you can predict and you can analyze and predict disease progression using the retina as a proxy. That's pretty cool. 
I get it now as you're describing it. It's definitely fun to make tools for businesses that ultimately help other businesses. But as you reduce, I'd call it the amount of hops, right? (laughs) As you reduce the amount of hops to the thing you're going after, the thing that's driving you, you get closer to that problem, then it's more rewarding, right? So the fact that you're building data that could be directly scanned to help people, help a medical advancement, you're really close to it. And the better tools you build to make it easier for them to do stuff on top of your data, then the better advancements we'll get or the or the faster the advancements we'll get. I think the faster, right? The faster the advancements we'll get and the more in-depth we could, the more statistics basically we could apply to that data per day, per hour, you know, per hour, per day, per week, per month. So what, what comes after the cloud? It's, a, it's an excellent question. It's hard to it's hard to imagine, right? Without just saying that the cloud the cloud will will grow. You know, if the pendulum swings back like it normally does, there'll be uh, advancements in sort of localized computing, personal computing that will be extremely powerful. You can you can see that with some of the like AWS Edge devices that they have, right? They bring they bring some of the power of the cloud local again. So you can imagine that the pendulum will swing back and forth. That will have extremely powerful local machines again. You know, out in the field doing IoT. I think IoT will be enormous. I don't know where blockchain will go. You can imagine that it will have significant application moving forward. You know, if you if you really project out there, there'll be interesting application once we can have quantum computers and sort of reality of quantum quantum computing. What's interesting though is it's not a general solution, right? There's no quantum computers won't solve kind of basic problems, but they'll solve very complex problems. So there's specialized kinds of problems that quantum will address. But that's kind of, I can see those things going um, there. Uh, whether it be cloud or not, I think another significant advancement will be in AI, in true AI. Right now we still have a lot of machine learning. I don't think there's a lot of AI really going on in the true sense of, of the word or the idea. And it's kind of scary what's what's going on. If you looked at um, like deep fakes and yeah. some of the some of the videos with Tom Cruise and and some of those videos, they're incredible. I'm not even Joel right now. I'm an intern. We're deep faking <laughs> this interview. <laughs> you no. could be. You could be an excellent AI. You know, an excellent deep fake. Right. So, what do you mean it's not real? Like it's not meeting the expectation of of common AI? Is that is that what we're getting at? I think of of AI is beyond machine learning and being able to learn new concepts without having been exposed to the concept originally, only related concepts. So I don't see that becoming a reality for the next 20 years. Did you read the transcript of the guy at Google who said that the chatbot had become sentient? And yeah, I haven't, I haven't read that yet because I was so skeptical that I was, I didn't know if I should read it. I know. Um, Did you read it? Oh yeah, it's part of my job, right? That's the beauty of getting to do this. What was your conclusion? Oh, I thought it was for sure. I mean, barring, however, if if I could, um, it's like a chocolate chip cookie. It's like you can eat the chocolate chip cookie and be like, "Yep, that's a chocolate chip cookie." But if you don't know exactly how it's made, if I got to see behind the curtain of exactly how that transcript was put together, then I would have more certainty. But my default was like thoroughly blown away. I I was just blown away. Forget, let's say it's not sentient. The conclusions that it was drawing and the stories that it was telling was just like, 
It was so cool. Everyone saw the headline and, and they they almost, you know, do what we do as humans to, to make life simpler. We condense information to move on, right? They're like, okay, that guy's crazy or that guy's real or, or, or whatnot. And then you sort of move on in life. And and I had classified that and then I heard from some other people. So I was like, all right, I'll dig a little deeper. And it was like, I think like a 20 to 30 minute read or so. And they had posted the whole the whole thing. And I, to this day, tell people it's worth reading. All right, I'm going to read it now. Yeah, I think it's on Medium. Or if you seem Google like a very it. thoughtful guy. I'm going to have to go and read it now. Yeah. Did you see the movie Don't Look Up? Oh, yeah. And I thought it was so <laughs> accurate. I thought it was so accurate, too. It was scary accurate. Yep. Between yep. that and the, the... You ever see Black Mirror? The, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Black Mirror between those two things. So, yeah. It captured, it captured the state of the state pretty well. Yes. So that's... If nothing else, we're in like the most exciting time. It's highly uncertain... But it's definitely exciting. It's definitely uh, interesting and exciting. I will give you that. Yes. If we were sitting around in like the 1200s in our town with like mud huts. Well, some of us would be looking at the sky, figuring out the moon and the stars, right? So. That's right. But but what's happening around us is just, it's my full-time job and I can't keep up with the advancements. There are so many massive advancements in every single field. I can't even track them with a team. Yeah, I can understand how that's how that's your reality. So what is the, the big takeaway you want everyone to have? Are you recruiting, hiring engineers? Do you want them to know that like, if they're at a certain size of a company and they're experiencing a problem, that they need to come talk to you because you've got the solution? Where, where do we need to focus? I think um, pharmaceutical companies should, should pay attention to what we have to offer. We're different from electronic med- medical records. We have different kinds of data. We augment EMRs uh, very, or replace them depending on what needs to be studied. So the kinds of data that we capture are real-world data, which is somewhat different than the structured data that uh, goes into um, EMRs. So that, that's one thing that any pharmaceutical company that needs a safety study or a comparative study uh, for their drug should, should pay attention to us. Anyone who's looking sort of to break into healthcare on the life sciences side, but not quite ready to, for, for pharma or a, um, sort of a big biopharma company, should look at us um, for employment. Um, I am hiring. Mostly right now we're looking at data engineers because we deal with so much data and data movement and data processing and filtering, specifically for the uh, precision medicine side, where we sort of sit in the middle of limbs systems and data collection and labs and have to correlate all that data, analyze it, store it. Anyone with experience on you know RNA sequence data, DNA sequence data, uh, labs and how labs are performed and the kind of uh, data you extract from mostly wet samples, you know, serum samples, blood samples, those types of things. I joined the company because, you know, what we did as a company, our mission in healthcare, the fact that we had a, a proven and experienced management team. So the company was started about 20 years ago, was acquired by one private equity firm, and about a year or so before I got there, was acquired by another private equity firm. So we're primarily owned by a company called Audax, and they're a top-tier private equity firm. And so the company is well-regarded, it's growing, it's financially stable, and we're in a great position to you know, expand into other disease categories. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, I've been having a blast. And we do a lot of greenfield development. Historically, the company has been so science-driven that technology has taken a real backseat. And that was one of the reasons I was hired a couple of years ago is to provide a technology capability to the company, a modern technology capability. 
And that's what I've been um, allowed and supported to do. And so for me, it's been a blast. And I've recruited a bunch of folks either that I used to work for or from related companies. And I've built a really solid team. Nice. As we wrap up here, I just want to make sure that we get like leadership question here. So I, I like to ask people for their best leadership advice that they've ever received and put into practice. Yeah, I probably have a handful of, of them. Um, that could be a topic for a whole hour, probably. Well, go ahead. Uh, yeah. I would say, you know, for CTOs and, and their teams is to take an interest in the business and in the domain that they're working in. The true value of technology comes from solving problems in an effective way. Um, I think it's really important to really dig into the domain that you're in. I think partnering with other executives and thinking across the business versus just the technology landscape, especially at the CTO level. You know, you're a C-level person and you're just as valuable to the business, if not more so than the CFO, right? Or the COO. And you have to start thinking in those ways versus strictly about your vertical. I think that's important. And all this comes from my own failures, by the way. <laughs> this advice isn't, you know, coming from on high. This is because I made mistakes in every one of these areas. And I, you know, it, it, it's very difficult to be a good CTO and a good executive in general. And so I'm always trying to learn and be better at what I do. And I think it's, it's the CTO's job to evangelize and demonstrate the effective use of technology across the business. You can't assume that non-technical people understand the value of engineering and what it brings to the table. So you always have to promote your group. I think also favoring practicality and pragmatism and common sense instead of blindly following the new industry fad. Because if all you did was follow the new industry fad, you'd always be switching. You'd be agile, then safe, then you'd bring it back to something else. And then you'd say, let's try a mixture of water. And the more you do that, the more switching costs that you have. So I think applying common sense to how, you know, to work and to getting things done and to manage to outcomes, especially is extremely important. And I'd say probably lastly, staying current technically is really important and really difficult as you, as you mentioned, you know, building software is, is part art, part science. It's a craft and it's part engineering and it, we're in an ever evolving landscape and discipline. And so you know, keeping your intellectual curiosity burning, I think is important. Constantly reading is important. Experimenting is essential and being okay with failing as long as you learn from those failures. And then you can apply those learnings to, to future work, I think is critical to being successful in this space. Dude, that was awesome. <laughs> Thanks. You got to write a book now. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> I wish I had the time. Maybe someday. I could tell after all these interviews, like when people give insights, like the tone in their voice changes, the harder one the insight was, like the more difficult <laughs> and the more pain there was behind it. It's like, I have yeah. my battle scars. Yes. This was great. We made a podcast. How do you feel? Yeah. Thanks so much. It was fun. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear, discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.